This is the message in Judges that I've been thinking about for a long time. It's one of the more awkward texts uh, to preach to a, a collective group of people, and I hope to uh, do so in a tasteful way that doesn't raise a thousand questions from five and six-year-olds for parents. So uh, it's just, it is a weighty matter. Um, it's something that connects very quickly and very directly to our society today. And so it'll feel very current. It's not, uh, typically I don't grab uh, the current headlines, never do uh, when it comes to preaching, walking through the text. But I just wanted to share up front as we dive into when everyone's right and when we look at when morality is done our way, what it looks like. And that's the picture that's painted here. We're going to be looking at Judges 19 through chapter 20, verse 14. This story will end up getting split into two because the lesson that is taught uh, shifts and moves um, as we close out the book. Uh, we watch Israel act in a way where they saw themselves as right. Uh, even though there's hints and glimpses of righteousness, uh, they struggle at the end doing things their way and then fixing their problems their way. And we see them just repeatedly or repetitively rejecting God's law. Uh, but here we are in Judges 19. And I put down in my notes, if there ever was a hint of moral fiber in our society, it seems to be completely stripped away today. Almost daily, we're adding new letters to what I like to call the perversion alphabet. Our society appears to be tripping over themselves to find some new way to engage in immorality or some type of perversion. If you read Ecclesiastes, there's a statement in there that says there's nothing new under the sun, and it appears our society is making sure that everything done under the sun is done in the full glare of the sun shining upon it. There's a desire for everything to be out public, to be exposed, to be on display. But I want us to understand something about our society, because I know uh, we oftentimes look at it and think, could it be worse, or has it ever been this bad? And I want to say this, yes. It has been this bad. We are not the only society in history to have displayed such public immorality or debauchery. Uh, you just have to read history and you, you can trace the cycle. Ecclesiastes, of course, being God's word is accurate. It's correct. There's nothing new under the sun. We're repeating the same sinful patterns that have been there. We're not the only ones to do this in public, we are not alone in the complete rejection of social norms to engage in twisted desires, to have no restraint upon ourselves, to see our world and they say to themselves, I'll do what I want. I don't care what anyone says. And specifically, they're saying, I don't care what God says. And so we find that rampant immorality and lack of any real moral fiber was also a sad reality during the period of the judges. Now we've walked through the first story. There's two closing illustrations. There are real stories. This is not something that was said to make a point, but instead was a real narrative, a real unfolding that people then um, God used to, to share what was taking place. And so the first story of Micah, Jonathan, and the Danites was when everyone was right in their own eyes, they will worship their way. And we walked through a whole message on worship, and we watched how they just did things their way according to their rules, and we watched what that did and how that didn't live out to real worship at all. And being a true 
worshiper or believer uh, in God. And today, in the story of a Levite, his wife, an older man in a wicked city, we're going to see that when everyone is right in their own eyes, they will do life their way. Life will be lived by my norms, by what I want, no matter what pops in my mind. And that means indulging their most selfish desires, no matter how destructive they may be. Here's a side note from an apologetic standpoint or answering the faith. Uh, People will say there's no absolutes. Uh, If you come in with a standard of God and of Scripture and what God says, people say, well, I'm not accountable to God. I'm accountable to myself. Uh, This story is exactly what it looks like when everyone's accountable to themselves. And specifically, the, the, the town of Gibeah and their actions, as wicked and horrible as they are, if you read through the text and see that, Uh, That is exactly what people will do when there are no absolutes. That is what our society is. And so if you're looking at our world today, if you listen to the news and walk through it, what you hear repeated when people are pushing their agenda is this idea that no one has authority over me. No one has the say above me. And I want us to realize as we see this story in Judges that you need to make a direct link to our world today because that's what everyone is saying. I don't care what you think is the standard or that you believe in God or that you think the Bible rules. I'll do whatever I want. And that's what our world is screaming today. And that's exactly where we are here. It's morality done our way. And we see its effect permeating the home or family, the community. And that's just, I'm saying, a specific grouping of people or specific areas. Uh, There's no doubt that there's pockets in our world where it seems worse than at other places, and then the effect on the overall people, and that's going to be seen in the whole tribe of Benjamin. And I want you to realize that the whole tribe of Benjamin, at the end of the story, chooses to identify with sin instead of separating themselves to God. It's not that every one of them believed in the behaviors that were taking place, but when it came time to make a choice, they chose sin over God. And I think that in this whole story as the church, Our wrestle will be with the temptation that Benjamin fell into, to take our associations over God, to choose sin over the Savior. Now, I want to give us the the kind of background of the story, walk our way through, and then as I go through this message, I'll read selective passages as we look at it. So chapter 19, we begin this new narrative that depicts complete sinfulness and worldliness of the time, a narrative that exposes rampant immorality and acceptance of worldly practice and pleasure. So what we see in Gibeah is vile and horrible. What we see from the Levite is vile and horrible, and the father, it moves all the way through. However, it is very depicted of that society. This is not unheard of. Uh, This type of wickedness was permeating uh, in Canaan, this is the pagan religion would have engaged in this type of behavior, would have been accepted. And so it's yet another picture of how engrossed they became in the world they moved into, where God said, be separate. They decided to adopt what the people did. And so what we're going to encounter is a Levite who lives near or at Shiloh, who marries a second tier wife. That's what a concubine is. It's a marriage, but she is considered second tier, very acceptable in the society. It depicted wealth and it depicted standing. But I want us to note right off the bat, it's not God's ideal of marriage. Genesis 2.24 states that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be 
one flesh. And that idea of, of one flesh, well, if you have a second-class wife, it doesn't depict being one, of having equal importance, nor is it a real marriage. Instead, it's a sad picture of use and dominance. And so as we start the story, we have this Levite living near Shiloh where the tabernacle would be. So this is a religious man. And he has a concubine, which is a second-tier wife, which would be outside the bounds of what God would want. And you might look and say, well, I've read where Abraham had a concubine, outside of what God would want. And just repeat that story. This is not what God said as the standard for marriage. Well, apparently his concubine was unfaithful and goes back home to Bethlehem. Now, the word that's depicted there in unfaithfulness it reads in Hebrew in two contexts. Either she is physically unfaithful or she is unfaithful in that she has left him, didn't stay with him, and was upset with him, angry, and so she went back home. Either way, we find her in her home in Bethlehem in her father's house. After four months, and the text is really clear, it takes four months, the Levite finally comes to convince her to come home and he is successful. They leave after celebrating with the father for a few days, very normal behavior, and they come to the city of Gibeah and Benjamin towards evening, and they wait a while in the town square for someone to invite them to their home. Now, there's a reason why they're in Gibeah, because they do not want to go into Jerusalem, which at the time was a pagan city. Jebusites ruled it. So you got this religious man who refuses to go into Jerusalem, because he does not want to stay with pagans. And I want you to get the feeling that's there. And he's going to end up in Gibeah, an Israelite town. And then we're going to see how he behaves himself. Now, normal Eastern practice, by the way, even today, would be to extend hospitality to strangers and care for their needs. This town, as you, when you read in the text, doesn't do that. They're waiting in the town square for a time but thankfully, an older man from Ephraim, who's residing in Gibeah, but he's from Ephraim, same place as the Levite, comes from working in the fields and invites the Levite and company into his home, where they begin feasting together. This is the norm. Yet before long, wicked men of the city come, and just to make sure you understand the comparison, like Sodom and Gomorrah, to fulfill their twisted desires upon the visiting man. The old man is mortified, and, and similar to Lot, offers his daughter and the man's concubine in the place of the man, which I want to note something. This is now a tragic picture of the brokenness and cowardice in the family unit. It's pure selfishness. It is less than value displayed in the ugliest of ways. We become accustomed to it and say, well, that must be Eastern custom. It's not Eastern custom to give up your family in this sense. It, fighting for your guests, yes, but to do this is just utter brokenness and sin. This is not what God wants to be done. The wicked men of Gibeah don't listen, and then in abject fear and complete cowardice, the Levite pushes his wife outside, and then the wicked men of Gibeah do horribly wicked things throughout the night. This is the story. All this takes place, apparently, while the Levite is sleeping. He's resting. The next morning he gets up to leave and she's lying by the door and he tells her, and, and, the, and the vernacular in Hebrew is exactly how you would read in English, get up, let's go, get up. What are you doing laying there? Get up and leave. But she has died. He loads her on a donkey, goes home and divides her up into 12 parts and sends messengers with those deliveries throughout Israel 
So all the tribes would now be confronted with the wickedness in Gebeah, which is a Benjamite town. I put it here, he does a radical thing that catches their attention, but he certainly did not give her a decent burial or respect her life at all. The nation responds by gathering in Mizpah and deciding to confront the wickedness of this town, Gebeah. They have the right focus to start out with. They request that the tribe of Benjamin give over the wicked culprits so they could be correctly punished. But the tribe of Benjamin refuses and instead decides to side with those immoral, wicked men and fight all of Israel. Doing life their own way in Israel has resulted in rampant and now defended immorality. But we'd be missing a key point if we didn't see the breakdown at the smallest level of society. Fractures of unfaithfulness, of selfishness, self-preservation, and self-indulgence that begin in the home. Now, right off the bat, I don't want to blame the home for the wickedness of the men of Gibeah. I just want us to recognize that self-centered preservation and indulgence is nestled in the home, manifested in the community, and defended by the majority. And so it just works its way through. We saw depicted here in this home, and I would say two homes here, complete brokenness. The Levite's marriage was built on the principle that she was a second-tier wife, possibly not his only wife, because the concubine foundation built the polygamy cult that went on. Um, We have a wife who is either unfaithful in the physical covenant she had made or in the fact that she was angry and left the home. Um, If you fast forward to the horrific scene in Gibeah, we find a father willing to give his daughter to protect his male guest and satisfy the wicked desires of the community in which he lived. So sadly, in two homes, we find a broken trust and a broken priority. Theron had read verses 1 through 4, and and that sets the tone that's taking place because here is a Levite that has either angered his wife, causing her to leave, or she engaged in adultery and left. In either circumstance, trust has been broken, but it seems to be the norm. It says in Scripture, four months had passed. Significant time passed without attempted reconciliation or appropriately handling of the situation. If she had left because she was angry at what he had done, he took a long time to come reconcile with his wife. And if she had engaged in immorality herself, the law was very clear at what should have been done. Nothing happens. Time passes, and then I put significant issues are bypassed as seemingly insignificant. There's never any address of the sin in the home, yet obviously sin and offense has occurred. This situation then exposes, and what's the whole point in Judges, the crumbling foundation of the family that is in Israel. Yet a broken trust is not only seen within this marriage. We fast forward to Gibeah and the lust-crazed mob of men. We find that a father offers his daughter up for horrific abuse to protect his reputation and name. I'm going to read Judges 19 through 24. If you're a parent, note this verse and make sure you never do this. Um, Behold, here is my daughter a maiden and his concubine. Them I will bring out now and humble ye them. 
And this is the phrase I underlined. And this father says to this crowd of reprobates, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man, do not so vile a thing. Now, we talked about the crumbling value system where women would be in society, what they're thinking, what they're doing. These are not things that God would want. This is not what God had orchestrated. This is not what God had desired. This is the wickedness of humanity. I put a note here. What security, safety, provision could this girl ever feel on her father's home? She knows that with the first pressure, her father would throw her to the wolves. Her father would rather allow her to fulfill the evil, immoral desires of the town, let them do whatever is on their mind, he says, than put up a fight. Or let me just put this in perspective. Leave your door locked. Don't open the door. Don't go out there. You might think, well, Kenny, they'll kick the door down. Then fight. Be a man. Do what you're supposed to do. The fact is they don't ever kick the door down and they don't ultimately get what they want in the deal. Because we know what happens. The Levite pushes his wife out. They shut the door. He goes to sleep and they never come knocking again. In other words, just shut the door. Or let me take another step for this father. Get out of Gibeah. You know what people are going to do. But instead he stayed there. Why? Because of money because he can farm there. Whatever it may be, there's something else more important than his family, and he makes sure you know that out the gate. The men have their vile focus, though, fixated on the Levite man, and so they don't listen to the petition of the master of the house, and in a desperate act of selfishness and self-preservation, a husband pushes his wife out to suffer horrific abuse." all to spare himself. Listen to 25. But the men would not hearken to him. This is the master of the house standing outside his door, door shut behind him. They're not listening. The Levite is inside listening to them say, we don't want that. And so the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. And the words in Hebrew are not a casual stroll to the door, but instead he takes his wife and shoves her out to the door. And in an instant, this man's priority is exposed. He is his own priority. The home is broken when the head of the house is making himself the priority. Nothing ranks above him, and we're going to see it doesn't matter if that's not only his wife, and we see a child doesn't matter in the other man's eyes, and even God will never be the priority above himself. He is exposed who he is. Sadly, it appears that he rested all night and upon leaving the house speaks down to his wife, up and let us be going. And the word is as ugly as it sounds in English. It sounds even stronger in Hebrew. Get up. Get up. We got to go. Got to get out of here. He's still thinking about himself. I got to get out of this town. I got to get away from here. She has died. But again, his view of her and family is on display. His priority of self is there for the world to see. And, and as we look at the home, I just want to touch on a few things as an action step. This narrative exposes how base and wicked society was. And let's be honest, the deeds of that society shock us. And I'm not going into the details of that, uh, but you can read and see exactly what's there. Um, the same things unfold in our society today. Yet as we see those evil worldly attributes, we find the home in the background, 
completely broken. There is an unbiblical marriage where a wife is seen as second tier, viewed as the husband's slave. He is religious, and I want you to understand this is a critical part of the story. Here is a religious man unwilling to lodge with pagans. By all means, he will not spend the night in Jerusalem. I'm not going to be with the Jebusites. I would never lodge with pagans. And he goes on four miles to Gibeah, yet he's unwilling to fight the even worse perversion of his own people. There's an unbiblical father willing to sacrifice his daughter to indulge the wickedness of the community, all to protect his reputation. And what I want to see here as we deal with this life our way is the brokenness that permeates the home. That wickedness is given a platform, an unhindered path, by the brokenness in the home. The door should have been locked. The man from Ephraim shouldn't have had to go get his wife, whatever occurred there. All of this unfolds in a situation built around this starting point of brokenness in the family. And I put here, are we doing the same today? Take the Levite, putting on a pretense of righteousness and distance from the world. I will not go into the Jerusalem. I will not go where the Jebusites are. I would never stoop so low as to put my donkey in their stable and asleep in their house while unwilling to put up a fight when that worldly disposition creeps into our own yards or let's be poignant into church. And then have we also sacrificed our children to the world, in essence saying to this vile place, do with them what seemeth good unto you, anything to appease our world instead of doing what pleases God. And by the way, that point's coming back around in the next one, because if you don't get anything else, get that. Are we saying to the world, when it comes time to conflict with our society, we come time to bump into it, are we saying to the world, well, I got to do this, keep the world happy. Uh, whatever pleases the world, I'm going to appease the world. It doesn't matter if I'm pleasing God. It doesn't matter if I'm, quote unquote, doing what he has to say. I have to do this. It's the world we live in. You ever say that, then you're in trouble. It's the world we live in. It's what we have to do. That's the Father saying, do with them what seemeth good unto you. The homes, the families depicted here are broken and unbiblical. And as the story unfolds, these broken families now are forced to interact with a progressively vile and debased community. So now you take a home that doesn't have a grounded biblical foundation, and now they have to run into a specific community that's about as bad as it can be. The home is not the reason they're wicked, but their brokenness is going to make them ineffective in dealing with this pressure that's here. So the band of travelers enter Gebeah, as I mentioned, four miles north of Jerusalem, an important town on a, on a hill. At some point, Saul, King Saul is going to build walls around it, and they make their way into the town square, where typically a traveler would have been offered hospitality. It is normal for someone to go in there and quickly someone say, hey, do you have a place to stay? I want to be your host for the evening. Uh, Judges 19.15 says this, and they turned aside thither to go in and to lodge in Gebeah. And when he went in, he sat down in a street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. In other words, he had to sit in the town square and wait because no one wanted to put him up for the night. 
the norm is that someone would grab them before this time and say, come in my home. Now he's sitting there, and we're getting a hint of how off this town is. Sodom and Gomorrah, same way. Lot sees the angel says, don't stay in the town square. That's ridiculously dangerous. Gibeah wants him to stay in the town square, unprotected, unsecured, not in a home. Thankfully, that man from Ephraim living in Gibeah takes the, the man in and provides lodging and a meal. But it's not long until they're feasting that the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, and if you see that in your translation, Belial is not and shouldn't have been capitalized in English, but it, it, it speaks to basically evil, perverse, rampantly wicked people, sons of Belial. Beset the house roundabout and beat at the door. And what they do is they come face to face with a lawless lust. Here is the unhindered sin of humanity on open display. It's not hidden. It's not even slightly disguised. And by the way, it seems to be accepted by the community at large. Everyone knows the drill. Wicked people get to do what they want. And I want you to let that seek in because we live in a society and we have sat back and said, wicked people get to do what they want because I'm afraid they might cancel me or they might cut me off or I might not have the opportunities I want. My kids might not get to do the things I want them to do, whatever it may be. We've let wickedness rule and that's what Gebeah has done. And here is a society demanding they get the wicked imaginations of their heart with zero regard for the rights or good of anyone else. They demand to be fulfilled and believe that they unquestionably have the right to take what they want. That is our society. When you hear a wicked person engaged in a perversion telling you that they have the right to do that, you're listening to a Gibeon. You're listening to somebody say, I have the right to do whatever I want to do in my life, which I'll go all the way back. If no one else is the standard but yourself, then you will demand that because it doesn't matter what happens to anyone else because you are God and therefore you can demand whatever you want. I'm saying this because we have stepped back from our society way too much. We've worried way too much about our money about our businesses, about our houses, our cars, our livelihood, our lifestyle, so much so that we have told wicked people, you can do whatever you want because we will bow to you. They cannot be reasoned with, and I put a note here, nor should the man of the house have tried and only press harder for their sin when they feel even the slightest resistance. The men of Gibeah depict the frontline soldiers of perversion, that have pushed their agenda down everyone's throats. They demand acceptance, really agreement. Sound familiar? If you don't do what I want to do, if you don't believe me, if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong, then you're horrible, then you're wicked, you're terrible, you're a bad human. I don't care what the world thinks of me. Oh, Kenny, but what about the reputation? I have a reputation for Christ, but I'm not worried that I agree with their garbage and filth. They demand agreement and they show a complete lack of regard for the destruction that follows in their wake. I want to give us a real-world illustration. There are continual studies and proofs that show the complete destruction psychologically, along with physically, when an individual begins altering their identity. That's something we hear all the time, right? Yet our world allows a child, and I would say pushes children, to rush and engage in the behavior and irreversible alterations. And we sit by, 
I just want you to know this. You walk in a bank today and not be 18. 11, 14, 17. These are ages 6, 7, 8. These are all ages that this agenda, this, and it spreads out. Oh, not everyone's like that. If they're engaged in immoral perversion, they are for it in some way, shape, or form. You may know someone, you may think, ah, oh, that's, that's not how the person I know. They are. Stop, stop being the man at the door is what I'm trying to push back and say. Stop reasoning with them. They are wicked to this extent. You walk into a bank at 11, 14, and 17 with a wad of cash in your hand, and you say to the bank, I want to open a savings account. I want to take my money and put it into the bank. You know what the bank will tell you? No. You must have a legal guardian to save money. In our country today, you need your parent or legal guardian to open a bank account, but walk into any clinic, anywhere, anytime, and you don't need a guardian at all. Why? Because they'll do anything to advance the agenda. And I'm saying this over and over again to the point of redundancy for one reason. Stop reasoning with them. But what do we do? We'll still attempt to stand at the door and reason with them. We try to compromise with sin in a skewed attempt to appease and supposedly reach them. I don't know how many denominations, and I know of one, and I'm not going to name it because that's not my goal, that literally is sitting down with the new alphabet, as I like to call it, of perversion. And we keep adding to it so no one could remember it, and so we didn't need to anyway. Because um, to, to, we want to reach them. Because compromise is what we should do. Because Jesus died on the cross so that we could compromise with sin. That's, that's the goal we have. That's, that's what we do. And I put in my notes, wake up, church. Wake up to reality. And I'm not talking about being an obnoxious person. I'm not talking about reaching people with the gospel. I'm not. I have sat down and, and had meetings with people and talked through Scripture. Now, I've been blunt with them because they've asked me, what do you believe on this? I believe the Bible. Well, they said to me, other churches believe differently. Other churches don't believe the Bible is what I said. She said, that's your interpretation. I said, no, that's what the Bible says. I'm not going to be ugly about it, but I'm going to be firm about it. But here's something we tend to do. We meet because we think we can dim the lights just a little bit. But you can't dim the light enough for any of this sin-stricken world to be happy. And the fact is, you have no right to dim the light anyway. John writes in 1 John 1, 5-7, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, dim the light, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Just to make sure you understand that God has been very specific all the way through the course of history, you come to 1 John, and he's saying, I'm light, and we don't dim the light for darkness. And actually, if you're going to side with darkness, then there's a huge question mark on whether you even know the light at all, because we don't have a right to dim the light. But our connection and compromise, our meeting with wickedness, which again, as I mentioned, church after church seems to want to do, only sets us up to give our families into their care, to let the world 
do with them what seemeth good to them. And I'm going to come back around to that same question because it is critically important. Have you been guilty of a willingness to put your family out for the pleasure of the world? And then before you answer no, examine what you've let into your home from the world. Before you say no, I'm not going to get, my family is not on the block. Well, then you look at your house and your home and you examine what you've let in from the world. And that can tell you a lot about whether you'll give over your family to the world. Now, the tragedy of an everyone right life uh, continues into an even broader context. As this narrative continues to unfold, we watch this sin become the rallying cry for a whole people. Now, I'm talking about the tribe of Benjamin. And I mentioned early on, I actually think that the tribe of Benjamin is the highest level of failure or the most likely level of failure that we'll have as the church. Because, and I want us to get a grip of this about the tribe of Benjamin. They are not all people who want to engage in the behavior of Gibeah or would approve the behavior of Gibeah or affirm that behavior or would like that behavior. These are all, this whole tribe is not sitting there saying, yeah, we think Gibeah is like a flagship city for us. We want every city to be like Gibeah. They're not. So they're not people who think, I must do all this behavior. I would say, as a general principle, they would have been against it. Gibeah is the odd few in Benjamin. And why I think we're going to be like Benjamin, or the, the highest risk is to be like the tribe of Benjamin, is because they do something that kind of boggles the mind when you know the framework of how they would have come into the the, into Canaan, what they would have known, and who they were worshiping. So, as I previously mentioned, the Levite husband, and I put that in quotes because he definitely is a horrific husband, takes his dead, low-tier wife home and decides to dismember her to call Israel to action. The response is basically 100%. You find out at the end of the story that there's one town or one region that doesn't respond. Judges 21 through 2, then all the children of Israel went out and the congregation was gathered together as one man from Dan even to Beersheba that tells you everyone's there with the land of Gilead unto the Lord and Mizpah. And Gilead is across the Jordan. So we're showing you that we got everyone north to south and even over here in the west. And it says, and the chief of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 footmen that drew sword. And Israel listens to the explanation of Levi. He recounts the story from his perspective, his fear of death and their actions against his concubine. Now, he does leave out the fact that he shoved her out the door because why would he share that he was an absolute coward and should be killed right there on the spot? Um, Israel states emphatically that this evil must be dealt with immediately and completely. And here's a glimpse of righteous fervor. Uh, next week or in two weeks, we're going to see how Israel responds and what takes place. And actually, their supposed righteous fervor is cloaked by, I call, righteous self-actions. They're going to do what they want, cloaked in the idea that we're doing God's bidding. They don't seek God in the sense of the actions they ultimately take, which is annihilate a tribe, annihilate a town, and then break their vows, but they have tricky ways to do it, loopholes with things we do. And so we watch them fall into anarchy, and in reality, they're saying to God, you don't rule, we'll do what we want anyway. So we'll see that next, uh, next week or two weeks. But you see a glimpse of righteous fervor, and they reach out into Benjamin, and they only ask this, give us the wicked men who have done this horrific act. They're not even asking for the whole town. They want 
the culprits. And they're going to kill him. Everyone knows that. This is an execution. And here is, we hit on a tragic component of morality when everyone is right. Benjamin chooses loyalty to their own, even though they know that what took place took place and that these men engaged in rampant, perverse immorality. Still, they choose in this situation to identify with sin. If you look at 20, 12 through 14, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what wickedness is this that is done among you? Now, therefore, deliver us the men, the children of Belial, which are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and put away evil from Israel. Give us the guys that did the, the wickedness, that murdered somebody, that abused somebody, those guys, not the whole town, not everyone in the town, those people, this is their idea. But the children of Benjamin would not hearken to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. But the children of Be Benjamin gather themselves together out of the cities unto Gibeah to go out to battle against the children of Israel. And as I mentioned, Benjamin was not engaging in the wicked and vile behavior of Gibeah. They were Benjamites, but all of Benjamin, this wasn't the, the tribe of Benjamin known for their immorality. The Levite didn't know that about Gibeah. He walked in there, and it's just some in Gibeah. Some wicked people are given free reign. Somebody doesn't step up and stop that free reign, and so it starts permeating, and what you have is even though the Benjamites would not of themselves ever affirm those actions, but association and attachment has them going to battle for and with them against the rest of God's people. Even though they're not in their mind fighting for immorality, but because they have a connection to these people, they're attached to these people because these people are from my tribe, then I'm going to go fight for them and with them against the rest of God's people, and we find them choosing to identify with sin instead of separating unto God. And this is not talking about self-righteousness. It's saying they literally picked sin over God because they had a stronger relationship with sinful people than they had with God. God must decrease so my other relationships can increase. And I can say this right now, if any relationship is above your relationship with God, then I guarantee you at some point you will identify with sin. You will choose sin over God. Though the majority of Benjamin was not individually engaged in rampant immoral behavior, they had conditioned themselves, numbed themselves to accept it because of their own relationships within their tribe. And so when it came time to decide against sin and for God, they were conditioned to fight for sin based on the priority that everyone is right. What happens when everyone's right? Well, then a whole tribe in Israel is going to decide to side with awful, wicked people. And you think, how in the world do we get there? And here's the sad reality. We're most likely going to find ourselves in the position of Benjamin and if living our way is the priority, we will ultimately side with sin. Why? Because we perceive ourselves as right. And we have a different priority than God, and so we will end up leaning into a different loyalty than him. You may think, no way. I would never. When I put dot, dot, dot in my notes, and I say pause a minute, 
and examine your associations, your attachments, and you may be shocked by what you will ultimately fight for and who, to make it clear, speaking of our Lord and Savior, you will tragically decide to fight against. Before you say, there's no way I will be Benjamin, just like I said before, there's no way I would give my kids up. No way I'm going to offer them to the world and let them do whatever they want. I'm, going to, I'm not going to let my kids be on the altar of the world. Look at what's in your house. Look at what you've let in. And that will answer the question on whether you will give your kids for the pleasure of the world. And then when you're looking at being Benjamin and you say to yourself, there's no way I will fight against God and God's people and God's law and God's word. And just pause a minute and you find out who your associations are, your attachments, and you're going to be shocked by what you're going to end up agreeing with. When everyone is right, when life is lived our way, that's what happens. And though we may think we stand strong, we're just standing on the edge of a cliff that we don't even realize is there. I'm standing for God, and our back is to something that we take one slight step back, and it's not just one more step back, it's down the cliff we go, just like Benjamin is. The immorality depicted here during the time of Judges is the same immorality we see during our time. We will sadly find that our loyalty will have become divided between ourselves and God and ultimately will not be upon him and for him. The erosion begins sadly in our homes where we find a broken trust and priority. That erosion continues into the community where the wicked wolves of society demand us to comply and agree and even participate in their wickedness. We, with our broken homes, will often offer up our children and our spouses to appease them, to do with them what seemeth good unto them, completely neglecting our responsibility to stand in the gap. And even if we do not offer them up, we sadly act like Benjamin, ending up identifying with sin instead of separating unto God. And I'm hoping we can pick up on this. You're either going to be separated unto God, or ultimately you are going to identify with sin. And you're going to look, and we're going to see this story, and you read it, and it's shocking, it's appalling, it confronts our senses, but our reaction oftentimes is, I would never do that. We don't realize how we slip into this in the other aspects of our life. Why will we end up identifying with sin instead of separating unto God? Because we are right in our own eyes and have neglected to see everything through God's eyes. I'll repeat that because it's critical to all of Judges. Why in the world do you identify with sin and not separate unto God? Because you're right in your own eyes and you have stopped or refuse to see everything, everything, home, business, family, everything through God's eyes. Let's pray.